From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Colorado family was driving across Kansas and got pulled over by the highway patrol. The traffic stop seemed to be over. Then the question started. The troopers ended up searching their vehicle, sort of tossing it from head to toe, actually causing some damage to the inside of their RV. And ultimately, they found nothing. A trial is underway that could put a stop to a law enforcement tactic known as the Kansas Two-Step, which appears to target people from states where cannabis is legal. Then a wildfire season preview. And as climate change and overuse parch the Colorado River, how's this for a solution? Bring in water from another river, the Mississippi. People think that there are crazy ideas, but it's not so crazy whenever you're looking at your water faucet being turned off. Black Pearl. Sheila. Hermit. The Corn. Just some of the names belonging to beloved cars donated to Colorado Public Radio. And some of the reasons people gave for donating their friend. I couldn't think of a better cause for the last bits of her life. I'm sad to see him go, but glad to know he'll be of good use. It's easier to let go of your car when you donate it to Colorado Public Radio. Learn how at CPR.org. Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with the story of the two-step, except this one's not on a dance floor. The Kansas two-step is a nickname given to what civil rights lawyers allege is an illegal police practice. And some Coloradans have been taken for a spin when they cross the border into the Sunflower State. A trial is underway, and Sharon Brett has taken some time out of her day To chat with us, she's legal director of the ACLU of Kansas. And Sharon, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. You are representing the plaintiff, Shauna Maloney, in a civil lawsuit. In 2018, she and her family lived in Loveland, Colorado, were traveling across Kansas. Give us a quick synopsis, what happened, and how does this so-called two-step come into play? Yeah, so we're actually representing three different sets of plaintiffs in this lawsuit. And Shauna Maloney and her husband, Mark Eric, are one of those three sets. So they were living in Colorado. They had bought a new RV. Uh, It was a used RV, but new to them. And they were driving it with their kids on a road trip to visit some family in Alabama. And they were stopped by the highway patrol on I-70 about halfway through Kansas and then subjected to an unconstitutional roadside detention. So the two-step comes into play where the trooper basically does all the business of the traffic stop, writes up a warning or a citation, comes back to the window, uh, hands over your paperwork, says, you know, here's your ticket, have a safe trip. It seems like the stop is over, in other words. Exactly. And I think the move is designed to make you think everything is over. And then they take two steps away, turn right back to the window and say, hey, I got a couple more questions for you. And the highway patrol thinks that that maneuver, that two step, basically turns the traffic detention into a consensual encounter where they can continue to get information from the driver in hopes of getting a canine sniff of the vehicle and eventually a search of the car. So it is buying the officer, the trooper, time to some extent 
Is it to call in reinforcements? I think it's not necessarily about just buying them time. It's about buying them access to additional information. So it's really trying to get the driver to give up more information about the purpose of their trip and what they're up to, which then the trooper wants to use to justify detaining them for a canine sniff. So in order to detain for a canine sniff, the trooper has to have something called reasonable suspicion. That's what's required under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And what's actually happening in these roadside detentions is that the trooper doesn't have reasonable suspicion to detain the driver. So they're going back for a second bite at the apple to try to drum up more information and then in their mind have enough to justify the detention for a canine to come out and sniff around the car for drugs. Differently put, isn't that good policing? Isn't that good investigative work? Well, according to the Supreme Court, you need to have suspicion to detain the person even for those questions unless the conversation is completely consensual. And the point of our lawsuit, and I think what the evidence is showing, is that those conversations aren't consensual. The Highway Patrol thinks that they are, but the reality on the ground is that they're not. These are people detained on the side of the road with a Highway Patrol trooper who just wrote them a ticket or threatened to write them a ticket, standing right next to their window, often with a service weapon right there on display, wanting to ask them more questions. People in that situation don't feel free to say no, don't feel like they can just drive off. And in fact, practically speaking, they can't drive off without risking injury to the trooper. We're, we're talking about the side of I-70 here and merging right back into ongoing traffic on a highway. In this case, your client, the client from at the time Loveland, Colorado, they'd been pulled over because I, I guess they had veered across a white shoulder line. Is that right? The reason for the traffic stop was that they had crossed the fog line, right? Um, So these are what we call pretextual traffic stops, right? Very minor violations that the Kansas Highway Patrol is then pulling people over for with the hopes of going beyond that traffic violation and looking for evidence of drug trafficking, for example. Yeah, let's get to the sniff, right? Uh, The assumption, I suppose, is that this is happening to Coloradans especially, Because they come from a state where marijuana is legal. Kansas, meanwhile, is one of just three states where cannabis, medical or recreational, remains illegal. Is that a fair assumption, Sharon? It's a fair assumption, and I think it's what the evidence shows in this case. So we had a statistician, a political science professor from Princeton University, do an analysis of the Highway Patrol's stop practices and canine sniff practices. And what his analysis showed was that out-of-state drivers are disproportionately targeted for these traffic stops. And then once targeted for the traffic stops, they are held for canine sniffs at disproportionate rates. And that means they're held at a much higher rate than we would expect for their share of the total population on the road. It indicates that the Highway Patrol is deliberately targeting out-of-state motorists. And we know from their training and from testimony that we've heard from the troopers, they find people coming from or going to Colorado to be suspicious because Colorado is a drug source state, as they call it. When we first published a story about the Kansas two-step 
to our website, CPR.org. It drew emails from several Coloradans who say they have experienced this as well, driving across Kansas. Just back to Shauna Maloney and her experience. Was there a sniff then, eventually? Yes. So the Eric Maloney family was detained on the side of the road at about 5.30 in the morning for a canine sniff. The canine allegedly alerted on the car. And once a canine alerts, then the officer has probable cause to search the entire vehicle. So that's what happened to them. The troopers ended up searching their vehicle, sort of tossing it from head to toe, actually causing some damage to the inside of their RV. And ultimately, they found nothing. Ultimately, they found nothing. How long was the total encounter? They were on the side of the road for about 45 minutes. Uh, And that's the case with the other plaintiffs that we represent in this case as well. So we're showing this is not just one officer that did this, not just happening once or twice. This is something rather systematic and pervasive throughout the highway patrol, across troops, across troopers, um, across different parts of the state. This is something they're actively engaging in across I-70. A hypothetical here. Let's say the Kansas two-step leads an officer to find a cache of weapons, someone who's planning something nefarious. Is that worth the embarrassment, the inconvenience of a hundred other people? I guess the only response I can give to that is that constitutional rights have meaning. And we don't give up our constitutional rights on the off chance that a violation of those rights has some public safety outcome down the line. If if we justified the violation of constitutional rights in the way that you're suggesting, then our constitutional rights would be meaningless. They might as well not exist. I understand you've been fighting the two-step for years now. Uh, Have there been other cases like this? Has there been other, I don't know, precedent? Are you the only one fighting this practice? Well, our case came out of a 2016 case called Vasquez v. Lewis, which was also against a highway patrol trooper from Kansas, basically about the exact same conduct, the roadside detention of a motorist without reasonable suspicion, in large part because that driver was engaged in travel to or from Colorado. So our case really builds on the Vasquez decision, which came down from the Tenth Circuit in 2016. And we've had a number of different claims in our case and a number of different plaintiffs. Uh, We tried a case before a jury in February that involved the stop of Blaine Shaw and one Kansas Highway Patrol trooper. We won that claim in front of the jury. A couple of weeks ago, we tried a second claim for damages in front of another jury. Uh, That involved Mr. Josh Bosire, another plaintiff, and Trooper Brandon McMillan of the Highway Patrol, again, won that claim. And in that case, the jury even awarded punitive damages, said that the Highway Patrol trooper was recklessly disregarding Mr. Bosire's constitutional rights. So this trial that we're, we're in the middle of right now is the sort of final stage of these proceedings. What we're hoping for is an order that actually ends this practice for good. And in this current trial, there's not a jury, correct? That's correct. This one's a bench trial. A bench trial. If indeed the Kansas Patrol is doing this with intention, what are the reasons they'd be doing this? Is there a revenue stream? I think that certainly has to be part of it. 
there's certainly an incentive for the highway patrol to engage in what they themselves call a high volume practice of car stops. The more cars that you stop, the more chances you have of searching vehicles, the more chances you have of uncovering drugs or large sums of money. And so part of this is likely driven by financial incentives to stop as many cars as possible and have the greatest chance of uncovering large amounts of cash that the Highway Patrol can then seize and retain through the asset forfeiture process. The drugs get destroyed, though. The drugs wouldn't be a revenue source. That's my understanding. Just just making sure. A spokesperson (laughs) for the Kansas Highway Patrol declined to comment to the big paper there, the Kansas City Star, citing current litigation. The attorney for the head of the patrol has argued that training, quote, strives to engage in best law enforcement practices, including formal instruction on the Fourth Amendment, so searches and seizures at traffic stops. The spokesperson added that the constitutional right to travel, presumably the 14th Amendment, is not infringed, even if, as you allege, out-of-state motorists are disproportionately stopped and detained relative to Kansans. What advice would you have to Coloradans listening who may have occasion to drive in or through Kansas? The ACLU of Kansas has a great resource up on our website uh, for individuals to know their rights when interacting with law enforcement, particularly on Kansas highways. My biggest piece of advice is to be informed, to know your rights, to know that you don't have to consent to a search of your vehicle and you don't have to consent to answering additional invasive questions by the highway patrol following a traffic stop. Uh, Let them complete the business of the traffic stop and then ask them if you're free to leave. And you should be able to. And if they don't let you leave, they better have a really good reason and they better be able to document it and justify it. Goodness, Sharon, it occurs to me that that interaction might go very differently depending on the color of your skin. That's 100% right. And that's been a big part of this case. So two of our other plaintiffs, Mr. Blaine Shaw is Native American. And Mr. Joshua Bosire is Black. And for them, what happens during those roadside interactions with the Kansas Highway Patrol is deeply influenced by their racial and ethnic identities. It's a reason why this case is so important to us. We know what law enforcement can do with the tremendous amount of power that they hold in these situations. And it's a small amount of space between Um, an interaction that goes okay, and an interaction that goes south. Have you experienced what we have experienced, which is that when you talk about the Kansas two-step, more people come out of the woodwork? Yes, I have probably heard from half a dozen people in the last week alone who've heard about our case in the news recently and are writing to us, calling me, saying this exact same thing happened to me. I think part of the problem, and it's something that's a big part of our lawsuit, is that we have no way of knowing how widespread this is and just how many people are being detained every single day without reasonable suspicion, because the Kansas Highway Patrol isn't documenting it. So we are entirely reliant on people learning about this, all of a sudden becoming aware that what happened to them was wrong, and then reaching out to us 
and telling us their stories. It's how we became involved in this in the first place. And it's how a lot of the witnesses that we've put on in this case first came to our attention. Well, thanks for this conversation. Thanks for having me. Sharon Brett is legal director for the ACLU of Kansas. She represents a family living in Colorado. when They were subjected to law enforcement techniques dubbed the two-step. Brett claims it's unconstitutional, while the Kansas State Patrol maintains it's legal. The trial resumes later today with a ruling expected later this week. We'll be right back to assess conditions in Colorado as wildfire season gets underway. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. The stories, music, and statewide coverage wouldn't be possible without member support. In short, you make what you tune in for possible. If CPR adds value to your life, support it at CPR.org. Things are starting to warm up. The snow in the mountains is melting. Days are getting longer. All that can be a welcome change, but springtime in Colorado also means the wildfire season starts in earnest. Well, our climate editor, Joe Wirtz, has been reading through the data to get an idea of what the months ahead might look like. Hi, Joe. Hey, Ryan. Where does this data come from and uh, what do they show? Yeah, so each each year around this time, state wildfire experts and public safety officials put together a report on conditions around the state. And this report is basically issued ahead of when the wildfire season really starts, uh, you know, starts to get busy. And right now, the experts think Colorado is looking at a normal wildfire season, at least through July. There's a separate analysis from national wildfire experts and officials, you know, their counterparts with the, with the feds. And, and this one is updated monthly. And that it also looks ahead a few months. And it takes a little broader kind of regional look. And it says about the same thing. Colorado is looking at a normal or moderate wildfire risk in the months ahead. Okay, we will dig deeper into what normal means. Uh, What do experts look at to predict how bad a wildfire season may be? Well, not, you know, not surprisingly, climate and weather is is a big part of the equation here. So that means they're looking at these longer term patterns that are setting up um, the patterns that affect the amount and timing of snowmelt, the temperature, rainfall, things like droughts. They're also looking at things like fuel moisture, how wet or dry vegetation is, the, you know, the fuel that can feed wildfires. Right. And they're also looking at the timing and the amount of green up. Uh, green up is the annual like flush of plants turning green, you know, for the season. And how are those factors looking? You know, broadly speaking right now, all those factors look pretty normal for Colorado. Uh, in the good column, we've got a ton of snow in the mountains yeah. that seems to be melting and filling rivers and streams at a pretty normal year, or even slightly slower pace, which which is good. Um, and all that moisture has really knocked down drought across much of the state. The persistently dry conditions in regions is a huge wildfire risk. And the climate models from the National Weather Service predict pretty normal rainfall patterns okay, in the months ahead. It sounded like you were almost setting us up for <laughs> bad news as well, the well, other side it, of this coin. It can't all be good news, right? So the, the overall picture looks good across the state in Colorado, but there are definitely some troubling spots. Uh, in particular, both both the state and the national wildfire experts have raised alarms about conditions in the eastern part of the state, right? It's still really, really dry there. The, their drought is just lingering and persisting. Um, they have recorded a record low fuel moisture uh, in, in eastern Colorado in April. That means, you know, the vegetation, the trees, the scrub, the the, the grass there is really, really, really dry. That, that could be really dangerous wildfire fuel. Um, they expect things will improve a little bit as, as moisture kind of moves in for the spring, but it'll still probably be pretty dangerous there. 
And there, you know, there are other parts of the state that still have a lot of wildfire fuel. You know, all the, the forests have, you know, a lot of dead trees in a lot of places. Some of those pine, pine beetles have killed off a lot of trees. So still dangerous pockets out there. These wildfire condition forecasts, like you said, depend a lot on climate and weather forecasts. So like how accurate are those when we're looking one, two, three months ahead? Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan, and, and really definitely worth stressing. There's, you know, these these models and predictions have have room for error in there. The, the climate and weather models can predict with some accuracy the, the likelihoods of these bigger weather patterns and trends, but this is not a magic eight ball. And experts say that conditions can really, you know, change really, really, really quickly. And destructive weather and wildfire patterns, yeah, they pop up without warning, even in these, you know, long-term patterns that look good. Um, it's also tricky, as, as we've talked a little bit, that things like normal, things like moderate, uh, these have to do with long-term trends, and they can kind of hide and downplay risks. Yeah, explain that, because I'm very curious what normal means. Well, I mean, basically, when it comes to wildfire risk, normal in Colorado is still pretty good. Pretty bad. Pretty scary. You know, uh, climate change means the fire season uh, is a lot longer, you know, three months longer than it was in the 70s here in Colorado. And, you know, the spring reports that we're seeing now really don't predict that far in advance. And as you can imagine, the further you look out, the less accurate it often is. Um, I did look back at uh, these reports for the last couple of years at the issue just to get an idea of, you know, kind of how they shaped up. So the reports that were issued like around this time in 2020 and 2021, you know, like the national experts were predicting normal conditions across, you know, large parts of the state um, in their spring forecast as well. And that did not hold true later in the season. Right. That's when we get Cameron Peak. He's troublesome in, 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 in the Marshall Fire. Uh-huh. The other thing, Ryan, is is the human element here, right? You know, most fires are sparked by human activity, and none of these climate models are going to tell you whether, you know, somebody accidentally leaves the campfire burning in a national forest somewhere. It's quite possible then to get very severe fires in what have been dubbed normal years. Absolutely. Just briefly, how are wildfire officials preparing? Well, they say they've thinned and treated a record amount of wildland ahead of ahead of the 2023 fire season. They've also, you know, strengthened their arsenal of helicopters, air tankers, spotter aircraft. Um, you know, they're always working to improve sort of the coordination with the federal resources so that they can bring those in if they if they if they need them. Um, look, their focus is is always, you know, find wildfires quickly, rapidly, you know, and aggressively respond and get those things put out. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ryan. Joe Wirtz leads CPR's climate and environment team. Subscribe to his newsletter at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a far-out water solution, spelled M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's not certain who first put ham, onion, and bell peppers in the Denver omelet. It may have adapted from a Chinese dish called Egg Fu Young that railroad workers might have adapted with ingredients easily found in the West. But a plaque in downtown Denver claims the omelet was, quote, developed to mask the stale flavor of eggs shipped by wagon freight. What's not in question is that the omelet first appeared as the filling in the Denver sandwich. In 1907, at least two Denver restaurants and one hotel declared they invented it. Portable, tasty, and packed with protein, the Denver sandwich was enjoyed by people from coast to coast and became extremely popular. 
However, by 1980, more and more diners were choosing the dish with cheese minus bread. It's hard to find a Denver sandwich on menus today, but the Denver omelet is still a low-carb favorite. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What if we could get more water instead of living with less? With the Colorado River in crisis because of climate change, drought, and overuse, is it realistic to bring in water from another river like the Mississippi? Parched, our new Western Water podcast, explores the idea now. Your host is climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Tim Dunn is driving his white pickup truck. He's a third-generation farmer, and he's giving me a tour of the lettuce capital of the world. If I'm eating a salad in the winter in Colorado, you're saying, I'm probably getting that lettuce from Yuma. Over 90% of the lettuce comes from Yuma all winter. The bulk of the produce that you see in the stores or on a cruise ship or at a restaurant, it comes from Yuma. Yuma, Arizona. We're very close to the border with Mexico. This is one of the driest places in the country. But all around me are crunchy, juicy fields of vegetables. You'll see iceberg lettuce, a romaine, uh, spring mix, which will be a red and green. Uh, you'll see cilantro, uh, you see uh, cabbage. So a little bit of anything you see on the shelves in a supermarket that has uh, leafy greens or vegetables like that, this, this comes from Yuma in the wintertime. Tim's family also grows grains, which get made into pastas or breads. The soil here is extra rich with nutrients. Over centuries, when the Colorado River flowed wild without dams, it washed this good soil downstream from the Grand Canyon, here to Yuma. We're in some of the richest fertile ground in, in the United States. At Dunn's family farm, he reaches down into a crunchy, bushy row of plants and picks off a softball-sized head of broccoli. We're out in a broccoli field. So you can actually I get to eat this. I'm so excited. Delicious. Yep. All we need is blue cheese. I do love blue cheese. (laughs) Do you grow blue cheese around here? (laughs) No. (laughs) These farms use Colorado River water. It runs so close by, Tim takes me to see it. It's right up here? Okay. We're going to go up here and get out. Let's take a look at what's going on here. So the actual river itself is is just right through town. The river used to swell so much sometimes that flooding would devastate this community. Today, of course, that's not the case. The river does not flood. And that's made Tim think about how to guarantee his family and farmers all over Arizona can stay in business for the long term. He's become the latest champion of a popular idea— to move water from part of the country that has much more of it. Think the Mississippi River and bring it here to the Southwest. This comes up constantly when people talk about ways to save the Southwest. True story, in the very first taxi cab I took when I was reporting this podcast, 
I was in Las Vegas. I told the cabbie why I was there, and he immediately told me how he would fix the problem. Build a pipeline from the Mississippi River. Seriously, that would do it. And finally, new rule, before we spread democracy around the world, America has to figure out how to spread water around America. Bill Maher pleaded from his TV studio in California in 2021, when it was really dry there, that we need to take this idea seriously. His attention on it shows how much this has come into the cultural zeitgeist. For more on this, let's go to me with the weather. Okay, on this side of the country, it doesn't rain anymore, ever. And on this side of the country, they're drowning. Now here's sports. In Yuma, driving around field after field thick with bushy plants, I can see why Tim Dunn is looking around for more water. This food feeds the whole United States. You've got McDonald's or In-N-Out will have a direct contract with the shipper to, to supply them year-round. So this is romaine. You can see here they'll be shredded and put in like a shredded romaine package that you see at the store. Mm, smells like chopped lettuce. <laughs> Farmers here are not being forced to cut back in our current drought yet. But Yuma is near the end of a long line of places using Colorado River water. Tim has invested in efficiency on his farm and says farms all over this community have done the same. But he says that's not enough. We do need to look for new sources of water because the Colorado River is going dry. When you stand here and look at this broccoli field, what's at stake for you, the West in general? You know, like, what's on your mind when you focus on this issue of looking for more water? My eight-week-old uh, grandbaby, you know, uh, my parents are still alive. Uh, I'm only one of many who their lives are built around this ecosystem, around this passion. Would the easiest thing be to do is sell this and, and retire and go live off and, and snow ski for the rest of our lives? And There'd be enough money that our grandkids could do that, but that's not the culture and the way of life we want. We want to be able to feed America. We want to be able to have a work ethic, and that's what we, we want to continue to do is to make sure that we can provide those services, provide our family a way of life, and be able to uh, continue doing what we're doing. It's some of the best technology in the, in the country. Tim has bills to pay, too. And he's terrified that if there's not enough water to grow food, he won't be able to make those payments. Fortunately for Tim Dunn, and anyone else who's even curious about the idea of bringing more water to this basin, he isn't some passionate person with a pipe dream stuck on the sidelines. Tim the farmer, who led as a kid in Future Farmers of America, and served on Arizona's Farm Bureau. Today, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. serves at the Arizona State Capitol. He puts on a press shirt and a tie to represent Yuma as a Republican in the state legislature. And he's brought his big idea to the Capitol. He presented a bill two years ago. The Natural Resource Energy and Water Committee is called to order. Madam Chairman, members, this is the bill you've all been waiting for. His bill urged the federal government to study the possibility of pumping and piping floodwater from the Mississippi River 
across the U.S. to replenish the Colorado. It's a win-win because the Mississippi River this year got flooded considerably, pretty, pretty seriously. On that same time, the heat temperature in Phoenix set new records. Tim, or the Honorable Mr. Dunn, points out again and again that he's only talking about flood water. He says he doesn't want to take water that anybody out east really needs. He got inspired to write this bill because of his brother. Where is he living now? My brother is in Greenwood, Mississippi. Tim's brother, William Dunn, moved to Mississippi in the early 90s to farm with their cousin. Half our Dunn family is back there. Between my cousin and the South, they probably farm, you know, 20,000 acres back there. So it's a lot. Was there any particular conversation on the phone, in person, the first time you saw his operation where you realized, like, wow, like, this is, this is different than what we grew up with? I think I remember when we first went out to visit the farm after he was just farming it and getting out there. It rained, like, eight inches in one day. So we, you know, it's like rain all night long. And we, you know, we only get three inches of rainfall in Yuma a year. The amount of water was incredible. And it's like that storm is just, is just amazing that they get that much rain in one, one setting. It was crazy. Water backs up onto the farms. So they get flooded because the water can't get off. And some, some years he'll have no damage, but at least one out of every third year, he'll have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of damage. Plans like the one Tim Dunn wants to pursue, to move water from one giant river basin to another, got a lot of attention in the 1960s. The water problem has traditionally been considered a local or regional problem. But it is not local or regional. It is a continental problem, which requires a solution on a scale that is also continental. This is a promo video for the North American Water and Power Alliance. It imagines something even bigger, a North American network of water pipelines in the spirit of the U.S. highway system, where water could flow where it was needed. This was the brainchild of Ralph Parsons. He made millions in infrastructure and industrial development. Parsons came up with the water idea after a big drought and wildfire in his home state of California in the 1960s. He wanted his company to build the way to a better water future. Water for irrigation, power, recreational facilities, and other uses would flow for distribution to eastern Oregon, to Utah, to Nevada, California, Arizona, and northern Mexico. Congress initially seemed interested, actually. But a lot of the water would have come from Canada, which really complicated things. The enormous price tag turned people off, too. And the environmental movement grew up in the 70s and helped sink Ralph Parsons' vision. But the idea hardly went away. As recently as 2011, a prominent water manager from Las Vegas pitched a version of it, in vague language, to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Her name is Pat Mulroy. She's considered a legend for her leadership on the Colorado River when this current mega drought first hit more than 20 years ago. A decade later, the drought was still striking fear in anyone who seriously considered the region's water future. So she told the chamber that the country could solve two problems at once, 
if the Mississippi River states and offices like hers in Las Vegas work together. We've always said water is local. Not anymore. Locally, you can't survive. She was asked about it a short time after by local business people in Las Vegas. My friends in New Orleans say, please do it tomorrow. Take it, take it now. The idea didn't take off then either, but it did get analyzed by the Federal Bureau of Reclamation. The year after Pat Mulroy's Chamber of Commerce speech in 2012, Reclamation released an exhaustive study of the Colorado River's supply and demand issues. They estimated it would take 30 years to build infrastructure to bring Mississippi River water to the Colorado Basin. And it would cost at least $14 billion. But technically, it is possible. Can we do this? Yes, absolutely. We have the technical knowledge to do it. Edie Zagona is a water resources engineer. She leads a team at the University of Colorado that helps manage rivers, including the Colorado. And even though she's been here working out of my home state for decades, she cares a lot about what happens in Arizona. I grew up in Tucson. My extended family still lives there. We have a business there. I still consider Tucson my home, actually. I have to say that is really true. So Arizona's interests are my interests, very much so. Tell us about the business that you have there in Tucson. Oh, our our family has um, an Italian restaurant that was started in the 1930s by my grandfather who came from Sicily. The same restaurant is still in business. My brother runs it and... Uh, So I'm involved in the business and helping out as I can from afar. Is there anyone in this episode who won't make me hungry? Anyway, so yes, we could get water from the Mississippi over to the Colorado River Basin. But do we want to? The energy costs, not to mention the construction costs, would just be enormous. Edie advises we take the $14 billion prediction from a decade ago and more than double it to at least $30 billion. These are all estimates because we don't know exactly where it would go since this is still hypothetical. Even if you don't go over the Continental Divide, you're still going uphill all the way from the Mississippi to the front range of Colorado You know, we're at a mile high, right? That's a a long ways. That's a lot, a lot of energy. Where would that energy come from? We don't know. Right now, we don't have that much extra energy lying around, and energy is pretty expensive. All of that means the water that comes from this project would likely be more expensive for consumers. Whether that's a farmer or another business or someone who lives in Tucson like Edie's family, would they each be able to pay the higher price for water that had to be shipped across the country? That would not be water that farmers could use. They would never be able to afford it. She speaks from experience. Edie was a young engineer working for the federal government when it designed and built the canal that brings Colorado River water to central Arizona. When that system started delivering water, farmers couldn't afford it. 
Tim Dunn says the idea this time is for cities to get more water and not take farmers' share of the Colorado. But there's no guarantee it would play out that way. Something else Edie has learned from her experience? There are the issues about how do you get the land to put this project on? Buying land from people who are eminent domain, you know, not very popular and very, very expensive and very time-consuming in terms of permitting and acquisition and all of that. Think about how heated the debates get in this country over where to build roads or power transmission lines or energy pipelines. A system from the Mississippi to the southwest would have to run 1,400 miles or so. That's a lot of places to debate whether the impacts are worth it. The environmental considerations are huge. We cannot consider just bringing Mississippi water and pouring it into the Colorado River. It would completely destroy the ecology of the river. It would introduce uh, nutrient loads that could be very, very damaging. It would introduce species that we don't have and that we don't want to have. Would we have to, like, possibly build separate reservoirs that hold Mississippi River water that would then have to get treated before it got introduced? Like, we'd have to kind of build this whole storage system to keep this water separated. Yeah, very likely that would be needed. Plus, Edie says water in the Mississippi serves ecological functions there when it floods, even if it's annoying to humans. We called another environmental engineer for a view from the east side of the Mississippi River. Everyone knows that I am easily distracted by towboats because they have to make a very sharp turn that we have a perfect view of <laughs> uh, from, from the classrooms on the second floor in our campus. Roger Viadero has a literal view of the Mississippi from where he teaches at Western Illinois University. No matter how hard I try, even with the blinds kind of closed, I'm like, ooh, that's a 12, that's a 12-stack toe. Look at that. When he started to see proposals like Tim Dunn's in the news, Viadero got curious about the idea of moving the water that runs outside his window to the Colorado River states. The reaction that people in parts of the Midwest have to this idea of moving water is just as visceral as the reaction that people in the West have. But he wanted to go deeper, so he worked with PhD students to study the idea they broke down precisely how many gallons of water flow down the Mississippi River and what kinds of pumps you'd need to push water west. They found some pretty bonkers stuff. Under one proposal, they calculated the pipe would have to be 88 feet wide. That is not realistic. Every potential approach causes you to hit a different obstacle. He's skeptical for all the reasons Edie talked us through, the economic, environmental, and legal issues. But even if you could get over all those hurdles, there is the reality that some years, there just won't be any flood water to move. We don't flood all the time. And we don't flood uniformly. Sometimes, they even have the opposite. Fortunately, we, we've moved out of drought stage. However, during September, October, what have you, yeah, the Mississippi River was in a drought condition. 
In fall 2022, as this idea to move water east to west gained a little momentum, the Mississippi River itself was in a drought. There wasn't enough water to move some of the shipping boats that Roger and the economy rely on. Edie says that in the past, there was a time when we could look at the history of the Mississippi River and reasonably predict what the flow would be. But with climate change, we aren't really certain of that anymore. We don't know what the floods will be. We don't know what the droughts will be. And so the reliability of getting the water out of the river is very difficult. That's the practical question. Then there's the philosophical one. Bringing in more water inevitably means more growth. At least, that's what it has meant in recent history in the West. It's what we've been doing by moving Colorado River water around. We've enabled growth. Tim Dunn says he's heard this concern from other legislators in Arizona. If we bring in more water, we'd be encouraging people to keep living a lifestyle where they believe water is more or less unlimited. Despite the challenges, Edie says it's worth studying the costs and benefits of bringing water over from the Mississippi, as well as the alternatives. Best to give people the facts, let them know, and allow the people on the Mississippi to have a voice in this as well. The study itself would take a few years, she says. Altogether, this solution would take decades to put into place. 30, 40 years, Edie estimates. She says, think about all the advancements we could make in that time. My guess is before 40 years from now, we'll be looking at water reuse. We'll be looking at desalinization, etc. And, you know, things that could make a big difference. Farming practices could be hugely changed and improved. The use of water in cities will continue to evolve. When I visited Tim Dunn on his farm, I asked him, what do people who think this might not be practical get wrong? We need to look at today, to what it's going to do for the next the next 50 years from now. And I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be expensive. People think that there are crazy ideas, but it's not so crazy whenever you're looking at your water faucet being turned off. That's the thing. Our water situation is so dreadful right now that Tim's proposal has started to win over some people who think it's at least worthy of deep exploration. Deeper than the feds went a decade ago. One of them is Sharon Megdell. She's an economist who serves on boards that manage water in Arizona, and study its future. She started to use her platform to bring more attention and more serious consideration to the idea of moving water across the country. What I heard some people in my state of Arizona say is, we're talking about taking floodwaters from these areas. Waters that are not wanted, waters that may do economic damage in that region, and then moving that water. And so that made me think, well, Maybe it's not totally outlandish. Maybe there are some win-wins in this. Tim's colleagues in the State House have the same thought. They overwhelmingly supported his bill asking the feds to study trekking water across the country. 
When it passed, how did you feel? Oh, it was it was great. I'm like, well, this is something that we're, we're moving forward, and we're gonna we're gonna try to make a difference for long term for Arizona. You know, we're standing on the on the shoulders of giants. Now I feel it's our time. It's my time to make sure I make a difference. When the resolution passed, there were headlines everywhere, right? We had emails and telephone calls and people wanting to, people, engineers wanting to, to, to apply for the job, they go design it. And, but mostly we're just people wanting to jump on board and try to help it. That happened two years ago. Then the Arizona legislature put a billion dollars towards finding new sources of water for the state. It might include helping to build out this Mississippi River idea. But so far, the response from the feds, who are the ones who'd really have to back it to make it happen, has been crickets. So Tim Dunn plans to spend time this spring trying to get members of Congress and the U.S. Senate to push for the feds to do the study. So the big question is whether this is the moment for this big idea There are so many unknowns, and that's what's intriguing about Tim Dunn's pipeline or canal. If it was studied, at least we'd have real details to debate and could understand the real trade-offs it would take. Being able to move water around would make our supplies more flexible as a whole country. But it doesn't actually save us from the fact that there could be less water to move. All of our freshwater supplies are suffering with climate change. Next time on Parched, one of the other big ideas the Southwest is exploring comes from a much more reliable water source. It's taking ocean water and making it drinkable. This water that we're going to drink right now, two hours ago, it was in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, I'm going to try it. We go to the coast of California to see whether desalination is taking off and whether it could solve our problems in the Southwest. Climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis with Parched, CPR's podcast about the Colorado River. This and other episodes live everywhere you get podcasts. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Anthony Cotton. You're with CPR News and KRCC.